Who slept badly last night? Yeah, I think you're my people. <laughs> if you slept well, we don't want to know. <laughs> I've been awake since four. Um, so it's a good job that I did all the hard work for this earlier in the week. Because this morning I'm quite tired. Now, you may remember the last time I was here, it was a little while ago now, and it was actually not long before Mark and Cheryl returned from their sabbatical. Um, and at that point, we weren't sure how long they were going to be away. And I thought, perhaps foolishly, that I would start a series. And I think Mark caught wind of it and hurried back. Um, <laughs> it's only about two weeks later that they reappeared. Um, but you know, he's given me um, two, two Sundays this month to try and get a bit more of it done. I know, eyebrow raise, that's a lot, isn't it? Um, a lot for you to have to put up with. Um, so I'm here today, and then I'm back in two weeks' time. Um, and I don't, that's not doesn't mean I'm going to finish the series, um, but at least it won't run too far into next year, hopefully. So if you weren't here last time, or you weren't paying attention, or you struggle to remember things as the years creep on, um, that's, that's me. <laughs> I started looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, and we tried to get a sense of the background um, of how the church came about, what their story was, and what, in particular what their personal relationship was with them and Paul. Um, now, this book is generally acknowledged to be Paul's first letter that he wrote. There's quite a few, isn't there, in the word? Um, but this one, they, they're pretty sure, is the first. And he wrote it at about the age of 47. Now, I find that quite encouraging because, you know, culture has a tendency to get excited about youthfulness, doesn't it? Um, you look at sports people and they kind of get put out to pasture in their 30s. And, um, and actually, I've seen churches where similar things happen, like within the worship team and so on. We're so in, intent on bringing through young people that old people kind of get older people kind of get pushed off to the side a bit. Um, but here you can see that even though I have now reached 40, um, I know, right? I know. I'm still in denial, I think. <laughs> I've still got plenty of time to make a difference depending on how God wants to use me. And actually, everybody does. You know, many of you will be older than 47. But the principle is the same. God can start something new whatever age you happen to be at. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I overheard with the girls the other day. It's sort of more and more the case now that I'm overhearing conversations that are really quite amusing. And uh, Sophie had said to Charlotte, Julia Donaldson, <clears throat> excuse me, Julia Donaldson has written over 200 books. Charlotte quite thoughtfully replied, well, I've only written two. I'd better get a wiggle on. Six years old, and she thinks she might be in danger of falling behind. But here we've got this body of work from Paul, okay, his famous letters, and he didn't even begin writing them until he was in the second half of his life. So anyway, he comes to Thessalonia, Thessalonica even, and he's established this church on his second missionary journey, and we saw... <clears throat> that he lived with them, 
he ate with them. He shared his life with them over quite a good period of time. Um, he built genuine relationship with them. Um, and that meant that he came to regard them much like a parent does a child, um, or their child specifically. Um, he uses a couple of references that are parental in their nature. Um, you know, the love between them was very genuine. He wasn't pretending, and they could tell they knew that. But then it all goes a bit wrong. There's a lot of persecution, and he has to be smuggled out of Thessalonica during the night um, because people are after him. All right? And this happens before he's finished teaching them everything that he wants to um, and before everything they need to know. So he feels really desperate to get back to them and to find out how they're doing. He describes himself as being bereft and eager with great desire to see their faces. Okay, he doesn't have an easy way to communicate with them like we do now. It's not like during lockdowns and so on where we could FaceTime, Zoom, all of that. He knows pretty much nothing about how they're getting on. He, he's left them with this baby-like faith, and he loves them really dearly, and they're being persecuted, and he's genuinely worried that they might have lost their faith and that everything that he's worked towards could have been in vain. So he tries to go and visit them, more than once, and describes his plans as being thwarted by the enemy. And you can get this sense in the letter of how desperate he is to know how they're doing. And so he sends Timothy instead. And Timothy is able to bring back word of how they're getting on. And we saw that Paul is absolutely delighted to hear that they are carrying on in their faith. They're carrying on in their love. And he's so proud of them. It gives him a lot of comfort in the middle of what he's going through, to know that this church is carrying on in their faith. Okay, now that's, where, that's roughly where we left off last time, and that's about the first three chapters of the letter. And there's only five chapters in the letter in total, so that means he spends roughly 60% of the letter reminiscing over the time he had with them and talking about his love for them. That's quite a lot, isn't it? I want us to keep that in mind when we move on to the next topics, Lost my place. <laughs> yes, I want us to keep that in mind because essentially the foundation that Paul has laid both in his behavior with them but also with his words in this letter is love. Yeah, we, talked, we sang a lot about love this morning, how crucial that is and everything God does and everything we are to do towards other people should be with love. Okay, so everything that he's about to say, all the correction or encouragement that he may need to bring comes on top of and wrapped up in a bucket of love and genuine relationship. Yeah, these people should be in no doubt about how dear they are to him and how proud he is of them. So I think that would make it a whole lot easier for them to receive what he needs to say next. They should hopefully be very secure in the relationship they have with him and I want us to keep that in mind for our own interactions with people and just ask as a sort of a side question, have we built secure enough relationships with our family, with our friends, that if we need to bring some sort of corrective encouragement, that they'll still feel secure about our love towards them in that? That's just a little side thought. So we're going to turn to the section we're looking at today. Last time I tried to cover three chapters um, in one session, but today we're getting to look at just 12 verses. 
That's the first 12 verses of chapter 4. So, finally then, brethren, I, I like that. He's 60% through, and he says, finally then. In Philippians, he says it 50% of the way through. <laughs> finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed, you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Okay, so we can see that Paul now is taking the time to bring some careful correction. Okay, he didn't have time to teach them everything. He wanted to when he was with them. Um, and what we're going to look at today, but also next time, is that he's kind of adding to it or reminding them, probably based off of questions or observations that Timothy's brought back to him. Um, when we come back in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that Paul actually has to help them with some theology that they've got in a bit of a knot. Um, but this section... He's talking about sanctification. And I have a suspicion, I don't know, but I have a suspicion that perhaps Timothy had let him know that the Thessalonians, they were continuing well with their faith and their love and trying hard to keep growing, but maybe they were also struggling with some areas of sin. So I want to start by asking a question. What is the will of God for your life? Now, I don't know about you, but I have sat through sermons. I've even sat through conferences, whole conferences where people talk about finding your purpose. I've done self-assessment aptitude tests within church <laughs> to try and find out your strong points so that you can find out how God might want to use you in church and ministry and so on. And I'm not trying to diss any of that. Um, and actually, you know, finding the right place to serve within the body can take a bit of thought and a bit of prayer and so on. But when it comes to finding this overarching purpose, this thing that so many people wrestle with, the Bible is really, really clear. In verse 3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, it can't really be expressed much plainer than that, can it? It can't be expressed much plainer than that. God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. But now that's a very Christian-y word, isn't it? 
That's not a word that crops up outside of church, um, particularly Christianese, we might call it. Um, so I looked it up. You know, I've heard definitions before, but I'm gonna, I thought I'd look it up again. I'll try and find a neat and easy definition. And this, this is what I came across. Sanctification literally means to set apart for special use or purpose. That is to make holy or sacred. It is both a state and a process. So the will of God for our lives is that we are set apart for special use or purpose. Okay, his will is that we are made holy and sacred. And there's two ways in which it happens. That's both a state that we have already obtained and an ongoing process to which we are still subject. Okay, now that's a little bit to get your head around, but we're basically on a journey becoming more and more sanctified, more and more set apart, holy, refined, different, and essentially more and more like Christ himself. So the obvious question is then, what are we set apart from? And the quick answer here is the fallen world. God's will is for us to be set apart from this world that we live in, to be holy, to be cleaned from the filth that's around us. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Yeah, his, his will for us is to take on this heavenly culture rather than the culture that we live in. Yeah, and a lot of us will know what it's like to experience a different culture. Okay, I know there's many people here who didn't grow up in this country, weren't born here, perhaps weren't raised here, and so on. Um, and for others of us, we've spent time in other countries or even just places in this country or even groups of people where the culture just feels different to what we're used to. Okay, and sometimes we really like those differences and other times they feel really jarring, don't they? Yeah, and when that happens, when we find ourselves in a different culture, we have to try and adjust to things being done differently. And that is a process. Now, I remember being in Spain in my early 20s. I was staying with a friend um, and her group of friends. And I desperately struggled with the fact that they eat their evening meal really, really late. Yeah, I quite like to be in bed early. I was in bed at half past eight last night, um, <laughs> partly because I was hot and there's a fan upstairs. But um, yeah, I, I love an early night. But they love to eat their meal at around about 10 o'clock or sometimes later. And I remember being struggling to, in a restaurant, struggling to stay awake over a pizza. And, <laughs> and just when I thought we were finished, probably about half 11, something like that, just when I thought we were finished, Everyone said, let's go to the cinema. <laughs> I went to a wedding out there once as well, actually, and um, I'm getting off track now, but um, that, that for, the, for that, the evening meal started about 10 o'clock and it went on until gone midnight. And then the party started. <laughs> and that went on until about five in the morning. And oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm not built for that. I'm not, I'm not accustomed to that. It's a very, very different culture that I have not grown up in. And if I was to try and get used to that, I would have to undergo a process of change and adjustment to make me more at home and more resembling that culture. 
And I think sanctification is a bit like that in a way, where you get saved and you get landed into a different culture. You're already set apart. You're in this new family. But we're on this journey of becoming more and more set apart from our old ways and being transformed into these new ways of heavenly culture. So sometimes the new culture will be things we love, things we find easy, and other times it costs our flesh. And it feels jarring while we adjust. And we might be doing really well with it. But as Paul says in verse 1, walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Yeah? So last time I preached, I'd been chatting to Phil, lovely Phil, the week before, and I mentioned that I was going to be starting a series on Thessalonians. And then the following week, after I preached my first message, lovely Maggie came to encourage me, and she was so sweet. And she told me that she'd heard what I was going to preach on. She'd done lots of reading about the background. <laughs> and she'd learned all these things about the culture, and I thought, oh, I haven't read that. <laughs> and so I'm very thankful because you kept me on my toes. And I went away, and I did lots of reading because I thought I need to, I need to up my game. Um, <laughs> So I'm thankful for that because now I've learned a bit more about this culture that the Thessalonians were coming out of into the heavenly culture. Okay. Um, now, we know what our modern culture looks like, don't we? But it's quite important to recognize what were the cultural pressures at that time. And is it similar to what we recognize now? Because it may be, it might not be. Um, so the Thessalonians, they lived under Roman rule. Yeah, many of us will know the Romans, they were pretty brutal when they wanted to be. Um, and it was very much an empire with a culture of deference to Rome and to its leaders. In fact, in some places, it was basically they worshipped Rome and the leaders. Um, but Thessalonica was slightly unusual because the amount of trade and commerce that went through it um, meant that it was actually very wealthy. And the people that lived there people of prominence, had invited the Romans to rule because it provided them with protection. But they kept this status of being a free city. So they weren't living under military rule, like a lot of other places were at that time. And they had, so they had this greater freedom, and it meant that the wealthy were very much in favor of Rome. And then it was the poor people that tended to suffer a bit more of the consequences of that. So there was an a small number of people who were extremely wealthy and they controlled enormous amounts of wealth, much more than they could actually use for themselves. And this system came about where workers who didn't have any work received small sums of money from rich patrons and then they were obligated to do favors in, um, in exchange for that. And that practice encouraged some people to avoid working altogether and just live from that patronage. In terms of religion, there were all kinds of pagan cults, temples, deities, and actually there's archaeological evidence that indicates at least 25 gods represented in heathen worship. 25. That includes Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Dionysus, and the Roman emperor. And it was the Thessalonian church turning away from that that made the people around them angry in the first place and led to them being persecuted. But 
what is the first topic that Paul decides to tackle in his letter? In verse 3 to 5, we look at it again, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, if that's the first thing he mentions, do we think we could possibly assume that that was one of the biggest things they were struggling with or getting wrong? Quite possibly. Now, if we were honest, it's a problem as old as time, isn't it? And I did a bit of research about the culture of that time surrounding these kinds of issues. I'm going to read you a few things I found word for word as I found them online. Okay. The subservient wife was expected to turn a blind eye to her husband's sexual infidelity. Males were allowed to sleep around as much as they liked, so long as their mistress was unmarried, or if they were a boy, he was over a certain age. Brothels, prostitutes, and dancing girls were all considered to be fair game, as were older males, on the condition he was to be submissive. Prostitution was legal and endemic. Slaves were considered as much their master's property in sexual terms as they were economically. If we take all of the Roman allegations of incest that have come down to us at face value, it is argued that we are dealing with a society in which almost anyone of any prominence had at one time or another bedded a member of his or her family. Roman culture had few sexual boundaries, and the Greek religion considered prostitution as a priestly prerogative. The sanctity of marriage was so distorted that extramarital sex was actually considered to be an act of worship. The Roman politician and philosopher Cicero wrote, Mind you, if there is anyone who thinks that young men ought not to visit prostitutes, he's certainly narrow-minded, no doubt about it, and completely out of step with our present liberal thinking. In fact, he has nothing in common with the customs and behavior of previous generations who were quite broad-minded on the subject. It's interesting, isn't it, that 2,000 years ago, there were politicians who were also the philosophers of the day telling people that if they weren't sexually liberal, they were narrow-minded and out of step with modern thinking. Yeah, this was the endemic thinking of that time. This was the values of that culture, and it was normal for them. Okay, and it's quite easy, I think, to draw a few comparisons. So this is the culture that this church was surrounded by, and presumably they'd come out of that themselves. I think it's highly likely that there were some of them that were still living by some of the ways of that culture. So I find it really interesting to look not just at what Paul said, but how he said it. Because to start with, he tells them to abstain from it, but he points out that part of God's will with sanctification is that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Um, the responsibility for having control over ourselves, over our own body, and what we do with it rests with us, not anybody else. Um, 
And the power to be able to successfully live this out comes from the Holy Spirit because it's through the work of the Spirit that in our lives that we grow in self-control in the first place. So Paul points out we've not been called for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. By which he's saying, guys, this isn't what we were made for. You weren't created to be made impure. It's not what you're here for. You were here, or you are here, sorry, to be set apart for God. And he gives this warning not to defraud or mislead each other in this because God is the avenger of all these things. And what that speaks to me of is, as Christians, sometimes, no, sorry, as Christians, we aren't meant to make excuses for sin, okay? Um, but particularly, we aren't meant to make out to other people that it's okay. Yeah, I think, I think there's many supposed Christians out here that will tell you that these things don't matter. That living pure as the Bible encourages is somehow like a wrong interpretation, doesn't work in today's more enlightened society because, you know, the culture's different now to how it was then and so on. But that's ridiculous, isn't it? Because we've just seen that these guys, they thought they were enlightened. They were already what we would call perhaps liberal or open-minded. And God called them away from that. And nothing has changed. God still desires for us to be in control of ourselves and set apart from the permissiveness that we see around us. And probably one of the heaviest points that he makes, in my mind, comes in verse 8, where he says, Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, that, this isn't a matter about difference over, a, a difference of opinion over theology, you know. Like, I've got a good friend who is at a different church, and she's a Calvinist, and we've, we've got... Um, different conclusions on how we might interpret different bits of the Bible. And, you know, it's fine because we both got a lot of respect for the other person's opinion. Um, and we're happy to talk about why we think what we do and we find all that interesting. But essentially, it's, we both know it's not actually that important in the grand scheme because it's, it's a human interpretation on how to read into certain things. But Paul here is saying this matter of whether we live purely or impurely, this is not a case of, well... I don't agree that this is how things are interpreted or applied. No. He's saying, if you reject this for your life, you're rejecting the will of God himself, not just man and his opinion. And that's pretty strong, isn't it? Um, there's no compromising when it comes to him calling out sin. But I want us to bring us back to consider the fact that this comes after three chapters of Paul talking about his love for these people, how proud he is of how they're progressing in their faith and their love and how he rejoices before God on their account. All of that is true. And at the same time, it also seems to be true that they're struggling to come away from sexual immorality, either because they find it hard or simply they're just not aware that they should be living like that. But I think it's probably more likely they were just finding it hard to give up the culture of the day and the, you know, just giving in to the lusts of the flesh. If you look at the way he starts the chapter, he tells them, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, so he's told them this before, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. I think he's told them this before. 
Don't think it's new information to them. I think he's shown them that God wants us to be set apart. He wants us to be pure. And I think they have been walking it, and I think they have been trying genuinely, but I think perhaps they keep getting pulled back. They keep falling back, perhaps, into the culture. So he's coming along to remind them, we've told you how to do this. You're doing all right, but there's room for improvement. And that really, that makes me think of sort of my approach both to teaching but also to parenting really um you know girls are six and they still need reminding quite frequently to wipe their faces after they've eaten yeah our will for them is to have clean faces <laughs> and they know this <laughs> we've been at this for years wiping little mucky faces and telling them to do it as they've got older so it's not new information for them and quite often now, they're doing a better job um, of either not getting in a mess or trying to clean it up afterwards and so on. Um, and sometimes they'll do a decent job, and then other times we have to send them back, look at the state of you, try again. Um, and we might have this little moment of, oh, look at you. But generally, we don't get angry about it. We just try and encourage them to up their game a bit. You're doing all right, but you need to do a better job. So that eventually, as they grow and they mature, it's just not even going to be an issue anymore, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. So we don't know exactly what the Thessalonians had been up to. We don't know who'd been jumping into bed with whom or who was meeting behind the bike sheds or anything like that. But we can see that Paul is not angry with them. <laughs> he's not telling them off so much as he's encouraging them to up their game. And all the while, people's hearts are right, and they are actually desiring to follow God. Then the message is, you're doing well, but you could do a bit more. There's still room for improvement, yeah? With my music, everything like that, doing all right, but there's still more I can do. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, and then there's this, just this solemn warning that comes with it about the fact that if you reject it, you reject God, not man. Yeah, there's no compromise on what does and doesn't constitute sin. Okay, and finding the way to communicate that and to apply that while still showing love can be really challenging, can't it? Yeah, I think there's a polarization often in Christianity where people either are unwilling or afraid to call sin sin, or they're so legalistic about it that they just lose that love and that compassion in the correction that Paul is able to show here. Yeah? I think sometimes, sadly, Christians often resemble the people who dragged the woman caught in adultery out to be stoned. Yeah, They were absolutely right and absolutely wrong at the same time. Okay, But here we can see that we've got this little section of correction and it's bookended with love. Yeah, Right at the end of chapter 3, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and all men, just as we also do for you. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, he says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Yeah? And he goes on, again, to encourage them to excel still more with that. Okay? Every single bit of correction that he brings here comes wrapped up in love. So I want to ask us a couple of things off of the back of that. And that's, in what ways... Can we ourselves excel still more in God's will for us to be set apart from the world and to be pure? Yeah, because there's many ways that can be applied. 
And are there ways in which the culture of our days hampering us with our sanctification? Maybe it's making it more difficult for us to be set apart. Um, are we perhaps in a form of culture shock where we're struggling to get to grips with this heavenly culture and what it requires from us? And if you are, that's okay. But find someone that you trust and that you've got that secure relationship with and talk to them about it. Then the other thing I want to ask is how we treat those around us who might be struggling with their sanctification journey. Because there's two ways to look at this, isn't there? Um, there may be those for whom the culture is so radically different that, like these Thessalonians, they might be finding it hard to fully walk away from it. Because um, actually, let's not kid ourselves with the timelines here. This, this was written maybe a couple of years after Paul had first been with them. You know, they were young Christians, but actually, like, how often do we just expect people to have 100% success rate in not succumbing to stuff like this? Yeah, we kind of expect people to fail in some areas, but we can be a lot more judgmental when they struggle in others. Um, I think I was almost quite surprised by how much love and affection Paul shows them and how warm he is to them, even though word seems to have got back to him that they're struggling with sexual immorality. You know, in how many churches now would that be the case? How many instead would be more like the people that brought the woman out to be stoned? <laughs> yeah, now I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that we overlook sin. I'm not saying it's okay now to go and fall out into sexual immorality because we're all going to be really nice to you about it. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying it won't or shouldn't have consequences either, especially the higher a position someone holds, the more naturally severe the consequences are. But I do want to challenge us to be able to bring what's actually an uncompromising teaching, biblically, in a way that just oozes love and encouragement. Because it's not God's will for us to be dirty, unclean, impure. It's his will for us to be set apart and holy. And we have to remember that it is a status we already have, but it's also a journey where there are many ways for us to still excel more. Yeah. Now, it would be quite easy to end there, and I was quite tempted to do so. Um, but I really want to touch on verses 11 and 12 at the end of the section. So I'm just going to quickly read them again. They follow on directly from this encouragement to excel more. Um, they almost look to define what that means. So I'm going to bring the very end of the sentence in, which is in verse 10. And so it reads like this. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Who would say that their ambition is to lead a quiet life? Yeah, we've talked about this before in the Bible study. Um, I mean, I teach drums for a living, so I'm kind of like failing on having a quiet life. <laughs> um, but is Paul saying here that we need to try and become more like the Amish? Because it kind of sounds a little bit like that, doesn't it? But I don't, I don't think so. You know, there's always going to be a part of me that is a bit captivated by that 70s sitcom, The Good Life, you know, where they, they give up the rat race and they try to live self-sufficiently. I'm always going to sort of find that slightly romanticized in my head. But then actually the reality is I have two courgette plants, and they've only yielded one courgette each <laughs> so far this year. And we have a mortgage to pay. Um, 
I've got a lot of tomatoes, though. I'll say that. <laughs> so what does it mean, then? What does it mean to live a quiet life? Why should this be our ambition? Now, the quiet, you know, just that phrase in itself, a quiet life, it probably conjures up images for us um, and set ideas. But actually, the root translation, sorry, the translation of the root word points to a life of peace. Yeah, one where there's rest, one where there's calm. The footnotes in my Bible led me down a bit of a rabbit hole with this because the word that's used here, which is translated as a quiet life and is described as being something we should aim for, it's exactly the same word used in 1 Timothy where it says, let a woman learn in silence. It's exactly the same word. So in one place that is translated as a quiet life and another as silence. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked into <laughs> a really big rabbit hole there, but how often has that verse been misused against women to try and shut us up? Yeah, but what if actually it reads, let a woman learn in peace? <laughs> it is better, isn't it? <laughs> what if it's actually saying that we shouldn't obstruct people who are trying to learn? We should enable them to do it peacefully. Yeah, and like I said, I don't want to get sidetracked away from what Paul's saying in our passage. Um, but when we consider the idea of a peaceful, a calm, an unhindered life, I can say that is genuinely an ambition of mine. I mean, maybe it's because the kids are still young and it doesn't feel particularly peaceful at times. Um, not that I'm in a hurry for them to grow up. But um, let's just take a, a little moment. I'm nearly done, I promise. Let's take a little moment to consider the fruits of the flesh. Okay, we talk a lot about the fruits of the Spirit. But if we keep giving space to and indulging the lusts of the flesh, like it talks about just before, then what fruit comes about from that? Yeah? In Galatians 5, it lists the fruits of the flesh as immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, good word, and things like these. Does that sound like a peaceful life? No, really, really doesn't, does it? Sounds like a very unpeaceful life, but it's what happens when we reject God's will of sanctification for us. It's what happens when we choose to walk in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Yeah, because that's the fruit of that choice. So when Paul encourages us to make it our aim to lead a quiet life, it's really an extension of encouraging us to live by the Spirit. It's an extension of abstaining from sin. He's calling us away from the strife of the world that comes from allowing sin just to be in our lives. And he's calling us to be set apart, to be holy, and ultimately to receive the good fruits of that. And then we end up being an example to those around us. So, summing it up, God's will for our life is sanctification. To be set apart, holy, not getting into the sin that surrounds us in this world, but instead turning our back on the worldly culture, instead for the culture of heaven. And if we or others struggle along the way, then we should be met with huge amounts of love, underpinned with a genuine relationship, but also 
an acknowledgement that sin is sin. And we should make it our aim to achieve the peaceful life that comes from the fruits of the Spirit being evident in our lives and those around us. Amen. So let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that as much as we tend to see our lives as being so different from the times that this word was written in, actually so many things in human nature really haven't changed. And what you are asking of us also hasn't changed, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to increasingly apply this to our lives, to not see this as something like that doesn't apply to us, that something was just for them, but actually there are ways that we can still excel more and that you, your will for us is to be clean and to be pure and to be set apart. And I pray that you would help us, Father, to be a loving people that people feel safe with as they walk out that journey and that process of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.